Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Duncan Trussell does not like being called a Buddhist comedian. And I get it. That label really unfairly pigeonholes him in two ways. First, because he is a legit, successful, hilarious comedian, no matter what his spiritual leanings. This dude performs stand-up all over the country. He's either appeared on or written for very big TV shows like Funny or Die Presents, Drunk History, Mad TV, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And the other way in which that label pigeonholes him is that when it comes to the spiritual stuff, he's not just a Buddhist. The guy is spiritually omnivorous and he knows his shit for real. He has practiced extensively. And over on his podcast, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, he interviews big time meditation teachers like Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg, people who've come on this show regularly. In fact, his podcast is so successful that Netflix turned it into a, a cult favorite animated TV show called Midnight Gospel. This was a truly and unusually delightful conversation. Duncan is able to talk about really serious stuff while also being extremely funny. In this conversation, we cover depression, anxiety, death, his interpretation of God, how meditation helps him handle the insanity of Hollywood, and the fact that he only has uh, one ball after a bout of testicular cancer. And we get even weirder. We talk about quantum expressions of the universe, psychedelics as a bridge to the divine, and how all of this relates to the creative process. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. 
They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Duncan Trussell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Great to meet you. Likewise, I'm a fan, so it's cool to meet you. Wow, thank you. That's incredible. So I understand that you don't like to be called a Buddhist comedian, but you are definitely interested in Buddhism. So I'm interested in how you got interested in Buddhism. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, to respond to the Buddhist comedian part first, it just sounds cheesy. Like, it's not that I mind because of some lack of connection to Buddhism or something, but the two together, it just doesn't sound good. I prefer comedian. You know, like think of Christian comedian. Like when you hear that, the first thought is like, boy, this is going to be funny. That's not your first thought. <laughs> so or similarly- Christian, I, Christian rock. Yeah, exactly. Striper. You, whenever you attach the religion of the performer to what they do, it dilutes it to some degree. So that's why- And to answer your second question, you know, what happened was I was doing these interviews at the these Ramdas retreats that they have in Maui. And so I would interview Ramdas and I would interview whoever the speakers were and as part of the retreat. It was just like a podcast, essentially. And then I'd been doing these for a while, years. And Raghu Marcus, who is the I don't know what you call him, the director of the Love Server Member Foundation. He said, Duncan, somebody said they think you're a really nice guy, but what's your practice? He said, do you have any kind of practice? Like, what do you, what's your thing? And I, my ego got really annoyed at that because it was so true. And so the person who had said this is now my meditation teacher, David Nickturn, and we started having these conversations and then finally in some informal formal way i asked if he would be if he would teach me buddhism and so that was i think the real beginning of true interest but prior to that i of course like anybody else into spirituality had read pima chodron tiknat han but i sort of gotten fixated on chogyam trumpa rinpoche and the fixation was taking the form of just profound irritation at <laughs> everything that he wrote and how I felt accused and called out by him in the most powerful way. But I never thought, oh my God, I'm going to study with one of his students. I just thought, God, this guy seems like an asshole. All right. Okay. First thing to do is just for people listening who don't know the names you've thrown out, I'm just going to briefly say Ram Das was a white Jewish guy from Boston. Harvard professor got fired for something having to do with LSD. And and then he went over to India, met a quite a famous guru whose picture I can see hanging behind you. Neem Karoli Baba. And then he changed his name to Ram Dass and became like one of the big early proponents of meditation and Eastern spirituality in the United States. Pema Chodron is also a white American woman 
who fell in with a big Buddhist teacher named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who is Tibetan, quite controversial. We can talk about him in a second. And he, Trungpa, had a pretty large Western following, including David Nickturn, whose son Ethan has been on the show, but David's never been on the show, so we should probably rectify that. But okay, so just having cleared that up, let me step even further back in your chronology, because you say that you got into Buddhism when you asked David Nickturn about maybe teaching you, but like something was drawing you to all of these books and all of these teachers. And you ended up at Ramdas retreats interviewing people like, so what was all that? What kind of suffering led you to that? <laughs> well, yeah, I just got really lucky. If you're in the world and you have a human body, you are probably suffering. And this is something on a podcast I just did with Rain Wilson. We were talking about suffering. I realized, oh my God, I'm a suffering snob. And I think this is a really interesting form of snobbery where one person who considers themselves to be suffering sees another person suffering. And it's like, that's not real suffering compared to my <laughs> suffering. So you get this bizarre hierarchy of suffering. I realized, oh my God, I've definitely been doing that. The luck part of it was just that my mom was very interested in the last part of her life in a lot of these teachers. And she was a real seeker when I was a teenager. And so I got lucky and had all these books scattered about the house. And I would look at them, teenage me thought they didn't want to admit that there was something in them that I really liked because my mom liked them. So there was always a, a sort of a embarrassing kind of rebellion happening in relation to them. You know what comes to mind? I'm sitting on the back porch with one of my mom's boyfriends in between marriages. She's pretty sure she just dumped him. He's back there smoking a cigarette. I'm sitting with him. And he had introduced my mom to some of these teachers. And he said to me, you know, yeah, right now you might be looking at some of these books or whatever. But at some point, you're really going to need them. And it was, it was very smart to say that he was right, too. All of us will have these time bombs that explode in our lives. And when they explode is the only question. But we know they will explode. Death of parents, illness, old age. And so I think that that's what's beautiful about some of this stuff is that you come to it, you get excited about it, you might drift away from it, and then the rubber hits the road when you realize that you're becoming angry in moments where anger does not serve any purpose other than to magnify the chaos of the situation. And I think somewhere in there, you begin to realize, oh, wow, yeah, I need, I need this. I need this because these moments keep coming. And my ability to be graceful in the midst of them is I don't have that ability to the degree that I think I need to have it if I'm going to be a good friend, father, mother, student. That's when it becomes important. How graceful are you now? <laughs> I just got back from a water park with my kids. <laughs> oh, we made it to the very last night, my wife and I. Not a single fight. We are in the bedroom congratulating each other. We did it. We didn't fight. She's like, I saw some parents fighting. Boy, were they in a big fight. And then from the oldest room, a howl of pure toddler pain. He had 
His eyes were burning from the chlorine, from swimming all day. My wife is pregnant. She's exhausted. And when you're like, have been trying to put a child to bed and you think they're in bed and then you realize, oh no, oh no, they're not, not only is he not in bed, I mean, he's screaming like he just, someone just set him on fire in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and so then in that chaos, my wife and I, oh my God, it's just explosive fight. So I would love to say to you, so graceful, just one deep, peaceful, big river flowing towards my own oblivion. But sadly, <laughs> no. But the, the difference in, is my wife and I continue to recognize, oh, right, the marriage is the practice. The marriage is the path. Those fights that would have lasted days compress into 20 minutes where you get through whatever that is, back to the love, connection. And so that, I think you could call that grace. And so there's that, which I'm very grateful for. For most humans, being more graceful does not mean never being graceless. It just means recovering more quickly, I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that in the weird sort of binary that exists between like pleasure, pain, grace, gracelessness, we, most people seem to be very addicted to the grace part, obviously, to the bliss part, to the joy part, and somehow forget that you can't get those without the other side of the coin. That In fact, the other side of the coin is like the roots of a flower or something growing into time, but we don't want to be the roots. We want to be the beautiful rose. We want to be the beautiful flowers, not the, the dark, dank, boring roots. And so when the, those dark moments come, it's easy to forget that that's just you growing into something potentially like really much more beautiful than where you're at right now. That's easy. I mean, I'm, I, when I, I've been doing this thing. I've got to stop. Some people, I keep saying these people, external people, it's me. Like for me, I forget <laughs> that those dark times lead to uh, better times. You said before that you're a suffering snob. What is the suffering that you've done specifically that allows you to be on the mountaintop and looking uh, down at the rest of us amateur um, sufferers? You amateur sufferers, listen here. <laughs> I'll tell you about real suffering. My mother died of cancer. I have one testicle because I had testicular cancer. My father died of COPD. And I had my ball chopped off and my mom died in the same year. So mm -hmm. I get a gold medal. For, I actually did. I got a Golden Apple National Suffering Award. From the, <laughs> <laughs> it's getting sent to me or I'd have it on the wall. That actually, I know you're making light of it, but that really sucks. I'm, oh, I mean, the worst. Especially the part about your mom. The worst. Yeah, the ball, who cares? It's like you got two. Though, but yeah, the mom, you just have one and you can't get a prosthetic mom. <laughs> 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 yeah, it sucked. It was horrible. It's horrible when we lose our parents. It's horrible. God, you know, I was just listening to this wonderful autobiography by Thomas Merton. And he's talking about when his father died. And he's such a great writer. And he's so, like, you feel it. It's just so poignant. But he was sort of talking about without some connection to God, you just have to take it. You just have to take it like a dumb animal. 
That's how he put it. Just like an animal, you take it and that's it. There's no grace. You just take it. That really hit home to me because, you know, in those moments where you're down in the roots and you lose that connection, you forget. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a gut punch, isn't it? And there's no, there's, how do you recover from it? Other than like, oh yeah, this is the world I'm in. Our parents, they, they die many times in horrible ways. And then that'll happen to us. Our kids will mourn, but there's no sense of some transcendent reality. There's no sense that there's anything other than that. That's it. And that, you know, so that's the pathway to cynicism, bitterness, Certainly, like if you really want to achieve high level suffering, snobbery, remove from the equation God or remove from the equation whatever you want to call it. And then, yeah, all you're left with is just endless suffering, kind of stupid. You're a little stupid bit of genetic protoplasm extending from the Big Bang, almost an accident. And then it can be so dark. Well, but so are you saying, I'm not quite sure here, You so are you saying that you subscribe to some metaphysical plan a la Christianity, or are you Absolutely. saying you're the protoplasm? Both. I mean, this is why I love Christianity and Buddhism, and I think that there's so many wonderful points where they meet. And some points they don't, but the reason Neem Kroli Baba Ramdas is guru, he would send these hippies off to go to these Vipassana meditation retreats. And the reason Ramdas would always have these hardcore Buddhists mixed in with the practitioners of bhakti yoga, the yoga of, of unification with the divine, is because the two work really well together on a certain level. One, the practice of mindfulness, practice of tuning into your body to what, to the reality of what you are or what you're not, however you want to put it. This is wonderful almost a palate cleanser, so that you can maybe be a little less distracted by your thoughts and tune in to this other reality that exists, the reality of love, compassion, the joyfulness, the, uh, you know, just the, the raw beauty in everything. Now, I think God is a term of convenience, isn't it? But I do subscribe to that. And I think Christianity, of all the religions that I've looked into, it really checks a lot of boxes for me in the sense that it has within it this perfect existential hero and the answer to all the various demands of the world is so beautiful, which is, you know, surrender. I love that. I love it. And I think also the brutality of the crucifixion, the symbolic realities in there that's that are woven in. So it's a beautiful symbol for the predicament of being human in the sense that we're kind of being crucified on the time-space continuum. Do you view the Jesus story as poetically true or literally true? Well, I get real bored when people start arguing over the literal reality of Jesus Christ. I, I read that wonderful book by Reza Aslan. It's so good. It's trying to, like, find the historical reality of Jesus. And apparently there was mention of this Jesus that was wandering around, but it never was, according at least in this book, that that Jesus was not described as Messiah, but as a magician, hmm. which I think is really cool and interesting. It makes sense, healing people, raising the dead. 
But one of the things Chogim Trumpa said you should look for when you're exploring religion, Buddhism, whatever it is, is that it should feel like fresh baked bread, not old, stale, dead, some dusty old thing from the past. And so that's another beautiful, I think, gift you get from working with mindfulness is that in the moment you reach out for what I think people call Christ consciousness or some sense of a benevolent strata of reality, a personified benevolence that seems to be so absolutely smitten with you, not in some narcissistic way, but in a more of a parental kind of loving way. And so I think in the moment, I mean, who cares? Let's say Jesus did exist. Well, who cares if there's no, no connection in the moment now? Who cares? Just another guy who was yapping back in the desert in those days, completely irrelevant to me. The resurrection, the all the miracle stories, they're really cool. But to me, that is, isn't very important. It's just a distraction, I think. Hmm. So you seem pretty omnivorous from a spiritual standpoint. Well, I'm a little omnivorous. I spent years working with David and working with a very simple meditation practice, very simple mindfulness practice, because I didn't want to, I, I wanted to do what Shogun Chumper recommends in, in his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which don't be the human version of a shop that sells religious gizmos. Don't be that. Buddha here, Jesus there, some, some Taoist scrolls, laying on the floor next to some, I don't know, uh, Wiccan books. You know, don't don't leapfrog. Don't, don't do the thing that it's a very natural thing to do, which is if any of these things are real, you're going to feel like you got shortchanged because where's the bliss? What happens when all of a sudden your suffering actually seems to be magnified by the thing that was supposed to alleviate the suffering? Well, something's wrong with this religion. Let's try the next one. And then you jump to the next one and it's real. So sure enough, you start feeling that same suffering. Ah, I'll try the next one. So I think the invitation of all of them is like, wait, hold your hand to the fire here for a bit. And then you can be omnivorous. You know, it, you just have to be careful not to leapfrog when the going gets rough from one to the next. But something is really driving you here. Something is really compelling you to do this looking around, I know you're not leapfrogging, but to try all of these different traditions and to weave them together for something that works, you know, if not perfectly, at least well enough for you. Well, uh, yeah, that's kind of the delightful thing about any of these. You know, I'll tell you, once I was friends with these awesome goths and I had eaten edible marijuana, I was way too high, and this was the moment one of them decided to play this. I don't, I, I am not into this kind of music. So forgive me for those of you who are, because I always get it mixed up that there's something called death metal. And then I think there's black metal. There's all these, but this is this hardcore, like, Nor I think it's Norwegian. This is like, you know, Viking doom music. And so he decides to, in the midst of like a coming up on powerful edible marijuana, he plays music by a band that as the cover of one of their albums, had the 
a picture of the bandmate who committed suicide. And one of the band members would wear his his a skull fragment on a necklace when they played. So, you know, he's playing this music that just is this pulsating darkness. And he looks at me. It was just perfect timing. He's like, do you feel the pull? And I'm like, yeah, I feel the pull. It's horrible. It's like getting stuck in a whirlpool or something of, of doom. And so that is a pull. That's a real pull. That exists in the world. So if that kind of pull exists, the other pull must also exist. Maybe there's no difference between the two. Maybe it's just different flavors of the same pull. Maybe that stuff is like Shaivism in India, you know, like the recognition that there's beauty in the darkest places. But that's not for me. And so I think whenever I find myself listening to an audiobook by someone that I love, by one of the teachers, or reading the Bible, or reading some Buddhist text, yeah, I feel drawn deeper in. There's a pull to it. I don't, it's a two-way conversation for me. There's a, some amazing back and forth happening with who I'm speaking. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on what day you catch me on, but certainly it doesn't seem to be like a, a one-way phone call into the void. Coming up, Duncan Trussell talks about the transcendent realm of the universe, why it's great to have friends with different perspectives, a spirituality and psychedelics, and the Buddhist hell realms, and why he thinks about the Buddhist notion of hell realms as psychological states. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You've traveled, I think, more widely than me in all things spiritual slash religious slash contemplative. I've stayed pretty squarely in the Buddhist and psychological, sometimes psychiatric zone. Cool. And I, I'm just going back to something you said a while ago, but like there's this transcendent realm of the universe that is smitten with you. And I have no gut instinct that that's true or and certainly no evidence that that's true. How do you arrive at that conviction? Oh, wow. What a, God, what a great question. And I will try to answer it right now, but that's the kind of question I'll spend like a year thinking about probably because it's a good question, important question. What are you talking about? What are you, what, what is this thing? 
you're you're saying all this there's some benevolent god force or whatever it may be what is this thing how is how do you prove it or, or what is that and i think that before i answer i want to say this is what really pissed me off when i was reading chogim trumper for the first time he said he didn't use the term hippie i know that's what he was talking about in those days he was kind of annoyed by the hippies and he was saying these people they say i experienced something beyond expression I don't have words for it. It was so powerful. I don't even have a way to describe what it is. And Trumpa says, that's like taking your confusion, putting it on an altar, and burning candles to your confusion. You have now turned your confusion into God. The fact that you can't express it is not some sign that it's mystical or transcendent or anything of that nature. It's just you've found a way to enshrine your own basic ignorance and confusion and just give up, just give up. I mean, I think this is like Camus' critique of Kierkegaard. It's like, come on, man, really? Faith, that's your thing. That's that spiritual suicide. You're, you're, that's, that's suicide. You might as well kill yourself if this is where you've parked your car. Some bullshit parking lot, Mark. Faith. Parking for the faith. You know, <laughs> parking for the faith. So, and I, there's been times in my life where I've really loved that. I've loved it so much, the the attack on faith, the attack on the ineffable God reality. It's been really delightful to like read various people dig into that from like Dawkins, death is the anesthesia that saves us from the pain of life, to Trumpa, uh, you know, I think we need this. All of these things are really good. It's, they're challenging things. They're challenging things. So what is that? What is that thing that, that people would call the Christ consciousness? What is that? Is it quantifiable? I don't know that it's quantifiable outside of some kind of, like, what, what do you call it when they do... A, a research paper where they analyze tons of data from lots of other studies. You know, in other words, we're talking about a human experience that has been reported over thousands of years by countless people. Now, that's not enough to prove anything. I mean, that's that you could say, oh, yeah, it's called mass hysteria. <laughs> you, yeah, there's lots of cynical ways you could sum it up. And I, I don't think that that is the, that, that's certainly not enough to do anything at all other than infuriate secularists. Like, okay, great. A lot of people believed a lot of things throughout time that were totally wrong. But so then now we're forced into the subjective realm, aren't we? It's It, it, it comes down to, I think, and this is what I do find to be so delightful about it, a personal connection that doesn't give two shits about whether or not the world believes you've had this experience, that the articulation of the thing is always going to be secondary to the thing itself. And that all you could do is probably confuse people by trying to report in on something like what you would call the experience of Jesus or the experience of the guru. I don't know if there's any difference between the two. The experience of a disembodied, non-embodied, perfected, 
consciousness that maybe isn't even here yet. I mean, sometimes people try to set this thing in time in the past. Then they they don't think maybe this is what we're all assembling into now. Maybe the entirety of all of the human reality and everything that's happening and all of the technology and all of the never-ending explosive bursts of discovery that happen for our species are leading us towards a point where we become some kind of super organism that's linked up via neural lace. And at that point, we merge into some other reality that's always been here or see something that has been invisible to us because of our disconnect from each other and from reality itself. My point is, I think the only way that anybody can really honestly answer that question is to say, I don't have, I don't know, I don't have proof, except to say I've experienced it. It's the most beautiful thing ever. It's a delight and it's exciting for me personally. But yeah, the fact you haven't experienced it, it might mean that I'm just crazy. <laughs> you well, know, the, truly. The, the, both things could be true at the same time. Yes. But, but I guess what I'm curious of, like, wh- how and where, well, two-part question, like, how and where and when and why did you experience it? Like, under what circumstances, A, and then B, going back to Merton, uh, is his argument that somebody like me who has, you know, like a pretty committed contemplative practice, but no faith in in the supernatural per se, and that I'm going to suffer brutally because I can't put the loss of my parents or anybody else into some sort of transcendent bucket? I haven't gotten that far in the book to get to Merton's view on hell and sinfulness yet. So I'm sort of strapped in and waiting for the slap in the face. I don't feel like he's a literalist in the usual sense of the word. You know, in Buddhism realms, we're in the human realm. They, there are There is a hell realm in Buddhism. Realm of the gods, realm of the jealous gods, animal realm. And so my teacher, he talks about these things as being psychological states. You know, that, that yeah, maybe they exist, you know, once you you die, perhaps... You can become a god or you can, you know, go into like some vast icy. I mean, I'll tell you, man, the Buddhist hells are a lot scarier than Christian hells. I would rather go to the Christian hell than some of the Buddhist hells. They are really, really scary. But <laughs> the you, if you look at it just from the, the idea that hell as a state right now versus hell is a place you go to when you die. Reincarnation is a thing that happens now, not something you need to worry about when you die. In fact, as above, so below. You can, from your own experience in one human lifetime, I think, extract all the stuff that probably will happen when you die. I don't think it'll be much different than it is now. And and so from that perspective, hell becomes a psychological state. And for me, what that looks like is complete disconnect from the world around me. I become so foreground and everything else is background. Absolute selfishness, absolute preoccupation with one's own problems and the suffering awards that we've given ourselves and why we are suffering in a never-ending pursuit to find, oh, what in the world 
caused this suffering. Well, it was because blah, blah, blah said that to blah, blah, blah. And that guy believed it. And then the next thing you know, blah, blah, blah did that to me. Can you believe that? Did They did that to me. Me. It's me. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's hell to me. And I like the C.S. Lewis quote about hell, which is, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Mm. And I think that this is the Buddhist, this is where Buddhism kicks in. Suffering, why, why are we suffering? We're suffering because of attachment. We're suffering because we're attached to the me, the little I, the me, it's all me. We've lost the, the greater reality that works on a psychiatric level, which is when you're looking into the world, you're seeing your mind, not in some mystical way. You're literally seeing your mind. You're seeing this perfect harmony between all of your neurons, your, your, all of the neurotransmitters, everything are, are working instantaneously to produce a spatial, olfactory reality. That's your mind. The color green, that's your mind everything. That's your mind. So from that perspective, we are completely like one thing. It's happening in your mind, you know? And so to me, hell is when you forget that. Suddenly that's not your mind. Look at that person over there. Can you believe that? Look what they're doing. Is he really smoking next to my kid? That motherfucker! I can't <laughs> believe people are like this! <laughs> <laughs> That's hell. That's hell. <laughs> so, yeah. And if if that exists here, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't exist in some if there is something after this, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't there wouldn't be the possibility of hell wherever we go after this. And if we don't go anywhere after this, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Pure annihilation. What is it? So I'm sorry, I'm rambling too much. What did, is it Socrates? Who was the one they made drink hemlock? I think it was so Socrates, but I don't know. He said, if this kills me and I fall into sleep, like the deepest sleep, a sleep where there's zero awareness, he didn't say zero awareness, then you've given me the greatest gift anyone could give me. I'm out, baby. I'm out. End of suffering. Thank you. But if there is something after this, I'm going to just keep doing what you gave me the hemlock for there. So <laughs> <laughs> you've won nothing. You've achieved nothing. That's such a baller response. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I'm curious, like all of this, this, the beautiful stuff that you've learned and are able to articulate. And I think based on what I can gather from listening to your podcast and just listening to you here, integrate into your life to one degree or another. How does it all help you or does it all help you with navigating Hollywood? Oh, well, yeah, I think that the, navigating Hollywood for me is, is been, right now it's pretty easy because I'm in Austin. I am on a show that is coming out, I think in the fall called Crapopolis. But my experience in general, I love being around people who don't believe the way I do. I love, 
some of my friends are not like atheists, nihilists. I love it. I love getting in little arguments with them or big arguments with them or sensing that they think that I'm out of my mind or they might sense that I feel bad for them or whatever. And the wonderful conversations that emerge from that, I think, are really healthy and good. So the general sort of cliche idea with Hollywood is, you know, people there are, some of them might be adverse to Christianity, or they might not want to hear about God or your belief in God or this or that. And I I love, I think that's great because it's not like I'm going around Bible thumping or anything. And I go back and forth on it all the time. Some of my best friends are Satanists, you know, so I don't, I don't really have a problem navigating Hollywood at all. It doesn't offend me that people, I get it. I totally get it. Why would you really believe any of this stuff? I mean, and you know, earlier you asked me a question that is like really important. You're asking, when did I experience Jesus for the first time or God for the first time or connect with Christianity? And that was when I was in college taking a class in the New Testament. And I went back to my dorm room. I had some wonderful LSD. I took LSD, got a glass of wine because it's Christianity, right? When I be, when I got high, I opened up to the book of John, which is one of the most bizarre chat books of the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. And it was suddenly I just, what popped into my acid-soaked head was somebody wrote this. That, you know what I mean? That regardless of the truth of what it was is pointing to the consciousness that put this series of words together into sentences was altered this is not a normal consciousness and that there was almost like a thumbprint that you could see within the way these the ideas were being articulated this person had been truly blasted that i mean again in college on acid all i could think was Whatever happened to this person, to get them to write like this, to be like this, must have been profound. And then somewhere in there, I felt it for the first time, what I would call Christ consciousness. I felt the presence of Jesus or what those words were pointing towards and realized, oh, wow, this is not what I thought it was. This is so completely different from what I thought this was when I was a young Episcopalian altar boy. Yeah, I mean, I get what I'm thinking of as I listen to you speak is Father Gregory Boyle, who's been on this show before, and he's a priest who works with gang members in LA. And he wrote a book called Tattoos on the Heart. He's written other books as well. And he talks about the no matter whatness of God, that his conception of God is not some you know, Sistine Chapel, long gray-haired white man. It's way less anthropomorphized and way bigger than that. And it is, it's like what you said before, somebody who is irretrievably smitten with you no matter what you do. That, yeah, that. And that somehow that thing has allowed a a connection point between the limited human consciousness and the source of all things. That is so wild that that could even exist. That could be real. What I love about it is it follows the exact experience I've had with any great romance I've had, which is 
you know, you meet somebody wherever at a party or something, you think they're so beautiful. If you're me, you think there's no way I have a chance with that person. There's no way. And then you run into them again or some indication that they're thinking about you. And But you think, oh, how could this even be possible? And then all of a sudden you're on a date with them. Then all of a sudden you're in a romance and it's incredible. It's like that. It's what? Really? Okay. So like the, the intelligence of the universe could have some personal interest in my stupid tendril of bearded DNA. No way. And then on top of that, could, could actually love me. And that, that this is this is one of the possibilities in a human life is that you can reach out to it and re- it reaches out to you. And, you know, Rumi, all the, gr- all the great mystical poets that they're, they, they're clearly in a romance. This is a, ro- these, Rumi's poems are so romantic. In, in the Vaishnava Bhakti Yoga, the stories of Krishna are passionate, romantic, and sensual. And, you know, so this is one of the possibilities. This is one of the possibilities, I think, in a human life, is that you can, you don't have to do it. This isn't getting high. You don't have to, like, you're not getting yourself high. It's just weirdly, there's some consent involved here, clearly. Like, if there is some possibility that there is a God and that God has some actual interest in all the little sentient pixels of its creation, then, boy, you want to talk about power imbalances, you know, like you want to talk about like dating younger people. <laughs> there needs to be consent. And that consent looks like prayer. That consent hmm. looks like, hey, okay, if you're there, I'm here. And then that's where I think the sort of romance starts, potentially. It also does sound, you mentioned getting high, but I'm getting the sense from talking to you that psychedelics seem like something of a bridge to what might be called the divine as well for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Don't you think so? I mean, sure. It's If, if, if anything, it gives you a little map. I think the... I love psychedelics. That maybe one of the problems with psychedelics is they seem to have their own personality. So the psychedelic can sort of it, 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 sometimes it might be a little difficult discerning the divine from the psychedelic. Maybe that's just stupid to even want to do that. But when I was in my acid phase, I I loved the breathing walls, the runes or glyphs or strange letters I would see all over everything, the all of the fireworks that LSD has to offer. But every once in a while, I would not exist anymore. And it, there was a sense of merging into some totality. And that you wouldn't know that it happened until you're going back into your own personal identity. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, what? Oh, wow, I'm hu- I'm human. Oh, right, I'm human. So to me, maybe what's happening with some of these psychedelics is it's scrambling your identity so much that you experience that kind of unified bliss state that is possible via all these various paths. And that's great because it gives you a sense that, oh, look, this is a possibility. This is a possibility. It's just maybe the pitfalls of psychedelics is you could start thinking the only way to experience that is through the psychedelic. Right, right. I have had bad experiences with psychedelics. Personally, my inaugural panic attacks were 
smoking weed as a young teenager. And yep. so I never, I've never been able to, and one of my areas where I'm self-critical is that I, I think I'm kind of too tightly wound, coiled up in my own ego to let go into the unified experience. Similarly, like I, I've, I've always had trouble mm. dancing. I think I'm Me too. just my head's up my own ass, you know? Are you a never nude? A never nude? No, I'm actually fine with that. I'm a never nude and I don't like to dance. <laughs> so I am wound tightly too, friend. And I've taken a lot of acid. <laughs> and it okay. didn't, I feel know, so much better. This thing where people take psychedelics and become nudists, that did not happen to me. I like clothes. I like wearing clothes. And so, yeah, I don't, I, I think, you know, you. I, I mean, don't be self-critical because I remember the first time I heard Ramdas say something along the lines of, you know, you don't need psychedelics. In fact, some of these practices will give you that times a million. And I just, I, the eye roll when I heard that, just like, give me a break. There's no way some meditation is going to take you to the place 500 micrograms of LSD takes you. Come on. No one's buying that. And, but I think now what he meant was that the psychedelics, they serve to give you a sense of what it is to go from a me to a we. And that you don't need some chemical to achieve that. But I think the chemical is nice in the sense that, I mean, you know, Terrence McKenna used to tell this story because as someone from the psychedelic community, I think he felt, I, I just think he had a, a, a justifiable suspicion when it came to spiritual people. And so he would tell this story about this thing. Yeah, you can meditate and experience this psychedelic state or whatever. The story is, is, I'll sum it up as quickly as I can. Essentially, a guy goes off, meditates in the woods forever, comes back to his guru and says to him, guru, I've meditated for 20 years and now I can walk on water. And his guru said, the ferry costs a nickel. <laughs> so you know is there a difference really i mean it's just this is isn't this the big problem is we get so caught up in the 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 vehicle you know it's like imagine like you're driving to the beach who cares how you get there if you get there on a camel if you get there on a ferrari a horse the point was the beach, you know, and and to me, any of these paths that lead one to that beach, even if we're all experiencing different parts of the beach, you know, like the black sand beaches in Hawaii, I don't like those. They're beautiful, but I like nice, soft sand. Some people love those, though. So, but I think it's all the same encounter with the ocean. And, and you know, that's my feeling with it. It's got to be the same place, right? Don't you think? It's kind of got to be the same place. That makes complete sense to me. But wait a minute, just a point of clarification here. Are you saying you're not even ever nude in front of your wife? Oh, no, I, I, I'm nude in front of my wife. But she she knows, like my wife, it, I, if, you know what? If I was my wife, I'd be happy being naked too. I'm a fool. <laughs> I'd be naked all the time if I was my wife. I'm old. 
I'm almost 50. I've got scoliosis, one ball, bald spot, asymmetrical love handles, weird patches of hair. I won't go into more details, friend, but it's, it's, it's not the Mona Lisa over here. <laughs> okay, but okay, so here's another thing. Let me just go back to another string that I left hanging here. Back to Hollywood. I get that you, first of all, I'm, I know you live in Austin, so I'm, I'm not referring to Hollywood as, as a place, but I'm talking about the entertainment business generally. I also get that not everybody in Hollywood is going to freak out about your spiritual leanings. What I'm getting at more is like you have been thriving for at least from my, from where I sit yeah. in an industry that is really hard and involves a lot of rejections, ups yeah. and downs, and who the hell knows, no job security. None. How do you manage your anxieties within that system? And does all of this contemplative history and practice that you've imbibed help you? Yeah, sure. I mean, the I think the verse from the Bhagavad Gita in regards to sort of getting getting along in the entertainment industry without going completely insane is you have a right to your action. You do not have a right to the fruits of your action. So the, the, to me, this is it. It's, it's first of all, if you, the entertainment industry itself is a, a, a you know, a massive community of creatives generally, people who love to make stuff. So that's the first and most important way to not go nuts in that in this business is you really have to like to make things. And that love of making things has to exceed the love of the very rare times that the thing you're making gets funding or goes further than your notebook or your laptop or your whatever it is. And and so I love making things. I love making stuff. I love conversations like this and doing my podcast. I love doing voiceover work for Crapopolis. Like, I really love it. It fills me with a lot of joy to do it. And I spent so many years starving as a comedian, like just literally starve, like no food, like out of food. And not literally starving, but you know what I mean, where you're like, I've got to make this biscotti last for three more days. <laughs> you know, is that starving? No. You have some uh, a jar of biscotti, but you, but it's not living high on the hog. And so, but I, I just all, have always really loved making things. And, and I'm lucky because I, I'm a stand-up. People come to see me perform. And that's a that's all that's there for me, so I don't have to be completely dependent on getting parts. I don't have to be completely dependent on selling the next show. I do have an actual like job that isn't so dependent on timing. Well, it is dependent on timing, but literally like s selling something at the right time to the right people, or you know, having a great audition or you know, being at the right place at the right time to meet the right person. So that gives me some security there. It's, I think it's very, very difficult for people who, you know, are always having to jump from one job to the next, a writing job, acting job, whatever. It's, it's maybe a little more terrifying than it is as a working comic. Coming up, Duncan talks about karmic and samsaric patterns and enjoying your ego while you still have one. And he talks about whether everybody is actually capable of love. Hi. 
Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Let me ask about the overlap between comedy and contemplative practice. I have this memory. I think it's okay if I say who this was. 15 years ago, I was on a beach and it was right when I was getting interested in Buddhism and I was reading a Buddhist book and a friend of mine who's a comedy writer, quite a successful comedy writer and director, his name is Gene Stupinsky. He was, he came up on The Office and has gone on to do lots of other stuff. And he was asking me about this book I was reading and he said, I could never do this Buddhism stuff, this meditation stuff, because I need to stay judgmental. That's the source of my comedy. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was a bit of a misunderstanding of Buddhism, but I just, you know, I, I say that because I want your reaction and also to hear you talk a little bit more about how and whether your interest in Buddhism and contemplation and religion plays into both your comedy and your creative process. Well, I think this is like the great fear. So... You see them less, but there's some comedians who've built their entire act around, like, being overweight. You know, like, this is a, this is a whole genre at one point. Lots of jokes about their body size. And this is really a very dangerous problem, right? Because, like, they feel like if they lose the weight, they're going to lose their jokes or something like right. that. That, they, that. That's all they've got. They've somehow forgotten. No, it's not... You're telling, it's your telling of the jokes that's funny, not the jokes so much. You'll be able to do this whatever your body shape happens to be. Or the same is true for maybe comedians. These, there's less of these now, but you know, comedians only talk about booze or whatever it is. If you've sort of planted your brand in some self-destructive activity, this is not going, this isn't sustainable, is it? Like, this is not going to work out for you very much. So there is this, I think, superstitious idea that you better stay away from things that are going to make you happy or spiritually satisfied as an artist because you will have no more gasoline for your art car or something like that. And this is just a misconception. Like, you know, the more you get into this stuff, like, God, think of the word enlightenment. Maybe before you started getting into Buddhism, you had some idea of what that was. And the more you started studying it and practicing and c- contemplating it, at least for me, that word becomes really something that becomes less and less important and less and less answerable to what that even might be. But some people think of enlightenment as really a victory of the superego, that 
you've become enlightened and now you are this perfect, sanctimonious, just annoying, everything's great. You're posting these Instagram memes that are so embarrassing with you sit. The, 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 the memes of people meditating, man, they always <laughs> freak me out because it's like, who's taking the picture? <laughs> Did you set the camera up? Like the universe didn't take this picture. You were meditating for a picture. It's so, so to me, that seems like an aspiration to become like an act, like something embarrassing. But Ramdas, my friend Ramdev, who I've had on the podcast a few times, said Ramdas told him, if an asshole gets enlightened, then they will be an enlightened asshole. And so I think that anyone in the world of comedy or comedy writing, fear not, fear not. If you were to achieve realization in this last lifetime, if you were to become actualized in this lifetime, Good luck, but if you do, don't worry. You will still be a complete judgmental prick. You can still have that. You can enjoy that. That can stay a part of your personality. It doesn't have to go anywhere. You can do that. You know, it's it just, it becomes, God, it hurts to be judgmental, doesn't it? When you think that's all there is, is your, that person and you and the judgment, it's a very painful situation. But if you can get a little space between your judging mind and the you that you really are, then judgment becomes just like, it's okay. Yeah, I have a judging mind. We all do. Horrible, horrible. But it's not all that I am. And that doesn't have to be like the sum total of my identity. I think exploring the mind, meditation, having a different relationship to your racing ego is hilarious. Some of my best jokes, not, not that funny, but to the extent that I've ever been funny, I think a lot of it comes out of having enough self-awareness to see how fucking nuts I am and then turn that into a joke. I would also say that pulling out my head out of my ass and being less self-conscious makes me more available and a better ad-libber and more spontaneous. So I actually think I'm way funnier now than I used to be. Not Again, I don't want to overstate my capacity for humor, but to the extent that it exists, it's better. Are you kidding? You're funny. Are you kidding me? You got to get into stand-up, friend. You should just get on stage and just start telling jokes. Oh, my God. Right? Look at John Cleese. You could play, st like, straight comedy. That kind of comedy is the most difficult and the funniest, and I guarantee you could do it. You could. Regardless, I, the, I agree with you, and it brings to mind a story I read. Okay, I don't know if you upload this. I'm going to do something really. I'm going to take a vape at everybody. I'm so sorry. I don't do this. <laughs> don't do this. Please don't do this. <laughs> you said before we started rolling that this is like your most embarrassing habit. It it it, it is. This is it, it's unforgivable. Even by the way, he's not getting just listeners. He's not getting high. He's smoking nicotine salts. <laughs> Not even nicotine. I just found out it's something called nicotine salts. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I, I think that, there, oh, right. The story comes to mind. I don't know, Allen Ginsberg is bitching to Chogim Trumpa about his tour poetry reading schedule. Because Chogim Trumpa was his teacher. And um, he's like, how do you, you know, how do you do it? Like, 
how do you do all these like lectures, these Buddhist lectures without getting exhausted? Chogyam Trumpa said, you don't like touring because you're sick of your poems. And why mm -hmm. don't you just write the poetry on stage? Don't you trust your mind? <laughs> and, 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 and so th this thing that you're talking about, the spontaneity that becomes available to you when you are, when you've shut down all of those neurotic apps, or at least they're running, they're not running as fast as they were before is incredible. It's incredible. Like you, to, to, the more you practice being in the moment that how can that not serve whatever it is you do? whether you're an artist, lifeguard, whatever it is, like uh, finding a way to really be here and trust that whatever happens here is good. Oh, it's the, it's a dream. And so to me, I think, yeah, it's a, it, it's, it could only help. It's not going to hurt. Like finding a way to be in the moment is not going to hurt whatever your particular job or form of expression is in the world. Has it hurt your ambition in this cutthroat industry in which you find yourself? No. No, it has not. It hasn't hurt my ambition because I have a family to support. So, like, now it's not about me at all anyway. I, I have to support almost three kids now, one's coming, and my wife, and all the householder stuff that goes along with that. So I, I, I have to be ambitious. I can't rest on my laurels or anything like that because... I'm the provider for my family. So maybe if I didn't have a family, I would be less productive. I'm just thinking, I'm just doing this thing of comparing <laughs> because I, I feel like it hasn't reduced my ambition at all. And I'm not sure that's a, entirely a good thing because I do have the, I am the provider in this family as well. And so that is a huge motivator, but I also think there's still plenty of ego in it. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have our ego here. I am not enlightened. I'm in my, e I have my ego. I get buttered all day long. I get bothered. And I was at the Mothership Rogan's Club and I was feeling proud because I'm going to shoot my special soon. Lance Bangs, who I really love, is going to help me shoot it. And I was feeling fancy because Lance Bangs had come to like check out the club and a comic I was with, Jamar Neighbors, he said it so perfectly without any ego behind it. He's like, yeah, my comedy special is doing really great at Cannes right now. That's how you say it, right? Cannes, the big film festival? Can, can. Can. I don't even know how to say it. I'm such a barbarian. But, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm all excited because, like, I'm going to do my special. He's sitting next to me and he's, he, he shows me. I'm like, I asked him. He didn't show me just, like, to brag. It's got those, you know, the feathers are around his special. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, in that moment, I was excited for him because I love him, but... Jamar Neighbors, but I, uh, you know, I couldn't help but feel a twinge of like, I want that. I want to, I want feathers around my special. So yeah, I'm not, I think it's, we have our egos. It's okay. I think that's the other thing. Enjoy your ego while you have it. You have it. What, what happens when you don't anymore? Maybe enjoy, you know, like when grief, when you're grieving, and you get to that point of realizing, oh no, the grief is going away. And then you start grieving the grief because you, mm. the grief is connecting you to the person that you lost. And that's going away now. Mm. So I think when, if you ha are, are working with an ego right now, it's fine. It's, and like, just like you said, it's kind of funny. It goes from being such a severe 
thing to there being a kind of like bittersweet humor to the situation of having this very demanding, very self-important aspect to yourself. You talked about grief. What? When did your mom die? And and are you in the stage of grieving your grief, or still full on grieving? Oh, I. You know, 2013. I'm 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 no longer in the you know throes of like grief anymore. But it does come back sometimes. It does come back. Like the this is this uh, the part of you that's interested in psychology, psychiatry. I'm sure you're aware of this. I I was not, but. Right around when my mom died. Now, I didn't know this, but all of a sudden, I got weird, man. I got weird, and I wasn't sleeping. I, I was realizing that as I was about to fall asleep, I wanted to start sobbing. Hmm. And so I was getting, like, nervous about, like, what's going on? Is this some impending nervous breakdown? Why do I feel so out of it? I was feeling really angry with everything. My wife was like, you just aren't acting like yourself. What is going on with you? I'm like, I don't know. I, that was the scary part because usually I could be like, oh, you know, it's because I've been I haven't been getting enough sleep or I've been drinking too much or some something I'm not doing that I, I should be doing or something I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing. And then just on a whim, I because I'd forgotten intentionally when my mom died, I looked it up and it was exactly that day. Like it, I, I had completely, my mind had forgotten the date, but my heart and my body remembered from the cues that, you know, spring is happening. And this is when my mom died. And that's a real thing with grief is, you know, it just shows you how powerful it is. It comes out of the blue and you, you might even not, you might not even know it's grief. Mm -hmm. You might not even, you might just feel like you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and not realize that you are, your body remembers the loss. So, but I'm not in the depths of it anymore, thank God. That story also speaks to just the power of the mind and all the aspects that are of it that are live below what we're conscious of. Yeah, yes, it's so wild. I mean, if that's happening, what are the other things that are still in there that we don't know about? How many micro griefs do we have that our body remembers? How much of what we call our ego and personality is just some strange patchwork of forgotten heartbreaks? There's no way to know. Forgotten in this lifetime or handed down to you through your genes from your forebears. I mean, they're just, you know, this is what I think people are pointing at when they talk about karma, just like the the sea of causes and conditions that have all tumbled us into this moment. Yes. Yeah. And it's so complex when when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, the cause and effect situation is so complex. And yeah, it's, I, I love the Buddhist cosmology. I love it. I love the idea that the samsaric pattern that any person is in in their life, the, you know, why does it, why does it seem like I'm always in the same relationship? Why does this keep happening to me? That that has been going on longer than this lifetime. That in fact, this has been going on for millennia for you. You just keep doing this loop over and over again. I think there's something in there that allows a person to be a little more compassionate with themselves. Yes, toward yourself and toward others. I've been in this running gun battle that I, don't, I won't go into details about, but just in, in my life. And one of the things that my meditation teacher says to me 
occasionally. And he kind of took this from Gregory Boyle, uh, he of the no matter whatness of God. Joseph Goldstein, who's not a Christian, who's my meditation teacher, often talks about love no matter what, which by doesn't he doesn't mean like whoever's bugging you, like invite them over to dinner and give them a hug. He means more like see that they're acting out their shit just the way you are. You know, they've got some patterns handed down to them from their forebears that they're acting out. And as soon as you look at it through that perspective, it's just kind of hard to stay mad. Isn't that interesting, that moment? That's another way you can see when they say suffering is caused by attachment. Because anytime I've done, I've successfully achieved that deconstruction of someone that I'm pissed off at, I realize like, ah, but I want to be mad. Like, no, no, I don't want to, I want to, I want them to be Darth Vader. I don't want them to be just like me going mm. through the same stuff that I'm going through. Cause now where will I put my aggression? <laughs> What's the target of my aggression now? <laughs> Who do I punch? <laughs> It's so interesting, it just, just kind of brings us full circle in some ways, because I really can, with time, start to see within myself the capacity for no matter whatness, vis-a-vis the, myself and other people. I guess I, I can't yet see how to scale that from inside of me to the universe having it. But maybe since I am a quantum expression of the universe, then that's the answer right there. There you go. I think that is the answer. I mean, I think that's it. The That's it. We, we are the universe. I, I mean, I, literally, I don't mean in some like selling nitrous oxide at a Grateful Dead show <laughs> way. We're part of the universe. You must be. If you're not, what are you? You're amazing if you're not. So we are part of the universe. We must be. And we are capable of love. We are. I know love. I know love. And so if this is the case, and I always refer to it as above, so below, why would it stop with us? And so, yes, I think you just start just like that. Well, I am feeling love. Or as Ramdas put it, I'm in love. Not like I'm, you are the nipple from which I extract love. You know what I mean? Like that's the big mistake we all make is you meet someone and you get confused and think they're the love source for you, a little love volcano that you can, you can scoop love out of and eat it. But he would say, no, I'm in love with you in the sense that we are all sharing an experience of love because that's what we're, that's what it is. I think in Buddhism, they call it fundamental goodness, that it's just perfect and beautiful underneath all of our stories. And that, yeah. And if that's it, fine. If it's just a little flicker of something that human monkey descendants called love, fine. It existed. It happened. In the universe, there is the capacity for love, for surrender, and for complete and absolute disregard for one's life in exchange for another's. That's real. That's quantifiable. And if if that's real, then I don't see any reason why there couldn't be greater and greater and greater levels of that expanding out through the infinite universe that we're part of. Yes, I, I think it's inarguable that the universe has created a capacity for love. Whether the universe is fundamentally loving, that I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah, tell that to like a, a planet that just got sucked into a black hole. <laughs> yeah, great universe. Our whole civilization just got devoured. <laughs> Take another bong rip, hippie. Wait till your sun supernovas and then talk about the loving universe. <laughs> Oh, man, this has been so much fun. I'm so grateful to you for making the time. It's super fun. Are you kidding? I'm so honored to be on your show. You are such an incredible interviewer. I can't believe I just got to experience being, having, you're so good. Thank you. I am, it was a delight and I really appreciate you having me on the show. It means the world to me. It's so nice chatting with you. you about Buddhism too. Can you, before I like actually liberate you here, can you just remind everybody of the name of your podcast and any other stuff that you've put out, comedy specials, books, anything that you want people to know about? Sure. Yeah, I have a podcast called the Duncan Trussell Family Hour Podcast, and there's a a show on Netflix called The Midnight Gospel, which is an animated series based on— my podcast that I made with Pendleton Ward, who made Adventure Time. So if you want an introduction to my podcast, probably The Midnight Gospel is a great starting point on Netflix. And I know you're very busy, but whenever we can schedule it months out, I would love to have you on my show and do the reverse interview. Anytime. And ask you the exact same questions you asked me, because I don't think I can do better than that. <laughs> you know what would be awesome is I don't have any plans for this, but at some point, I'm sure, I'm sure the universe will bring me to Austin. It'd be cool to see you in person sometime. Okay, I will have my assistant give you my digits, and I would love to go to dinner, lunch, breakfast, whatever, brunch, whatever. That would be really cool. So great, awesome. All right, my Thank new friend, you. Duncan Trussell. Yes, I did it. <laughs> I passed. No, I real quick. Do you realize podcasts are friendship interviews now? That's what they are. But the this is how I make friends now. It's sad. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for the great interview. Thank you. Such a pleasure. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to Duncan Trussell. Loved having him on. He's awesome. Thank you to you for listening. Go give us a rating or a review. That really helps. Thanks most of all to the folks who produce this show. They work incredibly hard. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Cashmere is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And we get our theme music from Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. We're going to talk about addiction with somebody extremely interesting, Carrie Wilkins. She's got a very interesting take on addiction. I'm interested to see what the response to this episode will be. So we'll see you on Wednesday for that. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. 
I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.